moving on to paragraph 2 of chapter 2. So be excited. (laughs) This will not take us nearly as long. Um, In fact, I already have the notes uh, done for more than half of this paragraph. So uh, we've covered a lot of what this reiterates here uh, in going in greater depth uh, in some other areas of paragraph 1. So most of this will simply be um, short statements that um, help us to understand exactly what the writers are saying. Um, I'm not saying that they're redundant. What I am saying is that we went into such depth that we kind of, um, we already covered a lot of what is being stated here. So let's uh, read paragraph two together and then we'll uh, jump in. Can someone read that for us? Great, thank you. So paragraph two is dealing with um, the all-sufficiency of God. In other words, in and of himself, God is completely sufficient, satisfied, and complete. Um, So we can say that otherwise. um, Outside of himself, God has no needs. God has no unfulfilled wants. He has no unfulfilled desires. And that may seem obvious to us, but um, as we move through this, I'm going to present to you ways that we have heard and may have even said ourselves that would suggest otherwise. Uh, So it's really important that we understand exactly what's being said here. Um, Additionally, for us to understand God and his purposes and his designs, we have to recognize the ultimate purpose of all that God does. And we've talked a lot about that. And that is his own glory. So um, all of this is related to God being all-sufficient and this idea that all he does is for his own glory. We covered that in detail. Um, It's very appropriate. We've already discussed that we can describe God as merciful and kind and compassionate and loving. And all those are true attributes of God. But we must remember, too, that none of these ways that God responds to us in his attributes is because of our worthiness. Remember, God is merciful and kind and compassionate and loving toward us so that ultimately he will be glorified. And we have a tendency to talk about those things in a way that puts us at the center of it. That God does all of those things because he loves us so much or because he wants us to dwell with him forever. Um, and there is there is truth in those statements, but they cannot um, they cannot be the um, the overwhelming uh, understanding of why God does these things. He does them ultimately that he would be glorified. Um, and that is very evident in this paragraph. So let's begin uh, at the start of that paragraph. God having all life, all of life, human life, animal life, plant life, is derived from God. Um, and we can say that its continued existence is derived from God. Remember we talked uh, before in paragraph 1, um, and I mentioned the, um, uh, in the writings of Jonathan Edwards, he spoke of everything that exists is held together constantly um, by the power of God. So um, all of the molecules and everything that make up um, everything that exists, God is constantly keeping that form. So a chair is a chair, 
and we recognize it as such, but it's not ultimately held together by the materials that make it up. It's ultimately held together by God causing those materials to hold up and be what it is. And that's sort of a a mind-blowing concept. If you start everything you look at, you realize um, the small little molecules that make that up and make whatever it is as it is, God is holding that together and preserving it in its state um, to include every aspect of the human body. It's fascinating uh, to consider it. Um, At Mars Hill in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul said, In him we live and move and have our being. And this is the very concept that he's referring to. Um, So God is is immortal, but he's providing life for mortals. Um, And when we speak of the immortality of God, we're speaking of his his ever-existing that he always was and always will be. We're immortal in the sense that we always will be, but we're mortal in that we were uh, created. Um, In Isaiah chapter 40, we get this uh, sense. Um, It's a familiar passage and and very helpful in understanding all this. Isaiah writes, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So, unlike God, man does not possess life in and of himself. Um, The Apostle James reminds us in James 4, You are a mist. It appears for a little while, and then it vanishes. And so, you know, as we think about life, we consider, I don't know, 80, 90, 100 years to be a long time to live life. And in the span of human uh, human life, that does seem like a long time. But when you consider the span of human history, um, 80 years is but a tiny blip on the map. Um, it's nearly insignificant. Um, so we have to recognize the um, the shortness of life. And that relates to what Isaiah is saying here. Flesh uh, is like grass. Um, you can think of it as... You know, in the in the morning it springs up, in the afternoon it's cut down, and uh, it blows away in the wind, never to be seen again. Um, that's very much uh, how quickly our life comes and goes. Um, so we're dependent upon God for all that he provides, um, and God is no way dependent upon creation. He's self-sustaining. Um, he is as he is and is in need of nothing. Um, there's a great... Uh, help from um, R.C. Sproul in this. I think he um, he nails it when he says, well, first, let's talk um, very briefly about uh, God's glory because all of this is said to work for the glory of God. Um, God is seeking his own glory in all that he does. Um, and as the confession states, God does not stand in need of his creatures and he does not derive any glory from them This is straight from the confession, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. So glory is all God's, and anything that could be said to be displaying or manifesting the glory of God is that which is provided by God. So when we say we are glorifying God, that can be true, but our 
ability, our desire, and our actually doing that is something that is provided by God. I cannot glorify God unless he enables me to do so. Um, we can't just conjure up this way of glorifying God in our lives by ourselves. It's the very same with faith. Faith is so often spoken of as something that you just, you just got to have faith. Well, first of all, faith in what? And second of all, how? I, in my flesh, hate God and desire nothing of him. So how is it that I simply have faith? It is a gift of God. It's something God has to do. Another way uh, to speak of glory in relationship to man is to speak of one's dignity or worth. And this is a quote from R.C. Sproul. He says, from a biblical perspective, we see that dignity, worth, or esteem when attributed to human beings is a gift. We prefer to think that our dignity is intrinsic to our humanity, but dirt has little inherent dignity. We were created out of dust, and we return to dust. We cannot find in ourselves any basis for exalting humanity because our dignity, according to Scripture, is not intrinsic. It is extrinsic, an assigned dignity. I have worth and you have worth because God says so, because he assigns value and importance to human beings, and because he has made us in his image. God puts a premium on the sanctity of human life. And this very much speaks to the issue of, uh, as we were just discussing earlier, the issue of life and um, the, uh, the evil of something like abortion. So a creature's dignity is derived from God and it is a reflection of the glory of God. So when we talk about being created in the image of God, what exactly are we, uh, what are we saying? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? The Imago Dei. Okay, good. So in, in one way, we're creating God's image by the fact that we are set apart from the rest of all of creation. We're different from the rest of creation. We're not like the animals. Uh, we have the ability to think and reason and project ideas and whatever else. We don't act simply on instinct, um, but rather our minds at work in us. And um, you said something else, and I forget what it was. Yes, the, uh, the communicable attributes of God being present in us. The ability for us to display, because of God working in our hearts and causing us to do so, to display these attributes of God in smaller ways than, um, than how God manifests them all. Um, so God is the fullness of all of these attributes. We are but a kind of a glimmer of that. We, we give some sort of testimony to God's ultimate fullness of that attribute. So when we love biblically, not ushy-gushy Hollywood love, but when we have true biblical love, um, we are displaying one of God's attributes in a very small way, but nevertheless, as created in his image, we're doing so. What else? How else do we manifest the image of God? Good. One of the mandates of God to take dominion over all the earth. In doing so, we're displaying something of, um, uh, of what God does as creator, as sustainer. And so all of, all of creation 
in that regard has been given to man to take dominion over. That gives man a lot of responsibility, not just in terms of taking it and using and abusing it, but also to care for it and to um, to pursue things like beauty in the midst of it. Uh, so very, very important concept as well. What else? Yeah, that's excellent. And that's why, in many ways, the Bible uses anthropomorphic language to describe those things that God does. So the mighty right hand of God or the eye of God or, or whatever it is. Um, we are simply a reflection of his greater uh, attributes, um, even though God is spirit and doesn't physically have them. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating as we consider God's creation in all of its many, many ways. So, so our value comes not because we are. We're not valuable just because we are. We're valuable because God has assigned value to us as his creation and as those who are image bearers. We bear the image of God. Now, we recognize the image has been broken. It's in its shattered form because of the fall. But the work of regeneration is a restoration of that image that will ultimately be restored um, when we're glorified, that perfection will be restored. Um, But that idea of the image of God is very important um, as we understand the value of human life and why God commands that um, that we should not take life, um, that we should protect life, that we have a responsibility not only to not kill, we have a responsibility to protect. So as we spoke of, to protect the unborn, but also if I see uh, someone... um, beating up my neighbor. I have a moral obligation to help them. I don't just sit back and say, it's not my problem. I have a moral obligation, according to God's law, to help those who are in danger. Um, And so those implications uh, are significant um, in a lot of ways, and we don't have time to dig into all that. Um, Perhaps when we deal with the law of God, we can go into more detail there. but significant issues derive, are derived from the issue of our being made in God's image. Um, <coughs> any more thoughts on that before we push on to the next one? All right. In addition to life and glory, the goodness of God is also found in and of himself. All that can be called good is only good because God has deemed it to be good. Just like life and just like dignity, nothing is intrinsically good. It's good because God has called it good. So God is the sole source and standard of all that's good. Um, If you remember previously, the confession noted that the goodness of God is not merely an action or a description of God, but rather an essential attribute of his being. The goodness of God, remember when we dealt with that in God's attributes, is all-encompassing. It, you know, it deals with God's love. That deals with his benevolence, his beneficence, um, his mercy, his grace. All of that falls under the goodness of God. Um, so all that God does and decrees is good because he is the one who's acting. Nothing that God does can be called anything but good. 
Um, and he will not and cannot act in opposition to that because that would be a denial of his nature. Um, again, uh, R.C. Sproul says, God's behavior flows out of his good nature. His external righteousness reflects his internal goodness, which he has eternally in and of himself. So we dealt extensively with the goodness of God, so I'm not going to dwell there anymore. Um, tied to this, um, the confession says, is the blessedness of God. So that is, yeah, go ahead. Hmm. I'm trying to think of anything that would be said that God wouldn't do, that would be. It's, it's really, in many ways, it's kind of a false dichotomy because we're, we're dealing with all that happens and recognizing that all of it is within the decree of sovereign decree of God, that even the evil that occurs works for the greater purposes of good that God has designed. So, um, you know, while God is not morally culpable for evil things that are done, we recognize that they are a part of God's sovereign decree. Um, And so, in one sense, um, by secondary means, God has caused them to happen, but all of it's working toward the greater good that he has purposed in the end. So, um, it's kind of a hard... I, I I can't draw a hard and fast line like that to say, you know, the opposite of that is necessarily evil. Um, I don't know. Anyone else have any thoughts on that? I can think a little bit more about that, maybe give you a more thorough answer. But that's a great question. Um, I probably, I, would, I wouldn't take it from that angle, though, um, because then you kind of cause yourself a lot of entangling problems in dealing with the problem of evil. So, All right, the blessedness of God is simply that God is perfectly contented with and fulfilled in himself. Um, the Greek word uh, for blessedness um, um, differs from, and some have tried to say that this means God is simply happy, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work out that way necessarily. It differs from happy in that happy doesn't give us kind of the full meaning of what is meant by the blessedness of God. Um, Happiness is something that comes as a result of favorable circumstances, right? So uh, something wonderful happens, we're happy. Or we have good news or things are going well, we're happy. Um, So that doesn't really get to the full depth, Um, blessedness is a satisfaction that is derived from God regardless of circumstances. So when we see things in the scripture like like James telling us that in the midst of our circumstances, whatever they are, that as we endure trial, um, that we rejoice. Um, That as we suffer, that we rejoice. Um, As we endure the trials of this life, um, that there is much rejoicing to be done. So most people, in the midst of extreme suffering, or let's take it to the level of uh, persecution, 
I don't know that most people could say that they're happy while being burned at the stake, um, but there is a blessedness and a contentedness about them um, that they are being, um, they are receiving suffering as a result of their relation to God, as a result of being um, children of God who have been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. That's the language of the Bible. Um, so it's a bit shallow to speak of blessedness simply in terms of happiness. It's got much more depth and uh, girth to it, I guess you can say. Um, the blessedness of God is that despite circumstances, um, that there is contentedness. So it's right to say that God's contentedness and fulfillment is a result of his being, and he is as he is, not as a result of circumstances. So nothing that we can do, no matter how sinful, no matter how evil, against God um, is going to change his blessedness. Um, because it's not contingent upon circumstances. So God is not standing in need of any creature which he has made. No one gives God a blessing. Uh, God's blessedness is his eternality. So this is where Paul says, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No, there's nothing that I can give to God that is going to make him... Uh, more blessed, nothing that is going to make God more pleased with who I am or what I've done um, in that regard. Um, but we recognize that in these things that, um, that God is fully content in and of himself. His blessedness is self-contained and not contingent upon our actions. Um, so any, <coughs> I told you we're going to cruise through these things, but any, any thoughts or questions on that? Again, something we've considered in different language, but uh, same concept. Yeah, sure. And certainly that's it's designed in that way that it would drive us to repentance, drive us to a place of recognizing we've dishonored God. Um, but we do recognize in the midst of that that God doesn't love us less because of our sin. Um, and God's state of being isn't changed because of our sin. Um, but ours certainly is, right? We... Man, we're all over the place when we're in the midst of sin or when we're not. As Donnie said, you know, when I feel like I'm doing well spiritually and pursuing holiness and um, feel like I'm experiencing great union with God, um, that um, I feel blessed. I really do. Uh, but when I'm sinning or I'm just down and spiritually things seem to be going poorly, um, it's not the same. Uh, so circumstances very much affect us in a way that they don't with God. Sam, did you have some? Um, those seem to be more um, a reference to, um, uh, we would talk about praising God or, um, you know, in our worship that we're bringing glory to God. Um, so a praise being given to God or um, an exaltation of his name that we're, um, so... Uh, when we say not giving a blessing to God, we're talking about, you know, I'm not doing something for God where his being is improved. Um, you know, where, um, so in Paul's language, giving a gift. So if I receive a gift, um, there's some kind of uh, supposed improvement in my circumstances. Um, 
you know, I didn't have this, but now that I do, now I do. Things are great. Um, depending what it is, maybe not. Uh, maybe, you know, you give me a cat or something, then things certainly are far worse. But depending on what it is, um, <clears throat> the circumstances generally in that type of language is speaking of improvement. Um, so I think that language that's being used is more into how we would probably talk more about praising God or our worship of God or um, exalting uh, the name of Christ or, or whatever. You agree with that? Okay. Um, all right, we have 10 minutes. Um, the confession presses on to say that God is the fountain of all being. Uh, we've, we've dealt with this at great length at the very beginning of paragraph one, so you might not remember it. It was a while ago. Um, God is eternally self-existent. Does anyone remember the, um, the Latin word that we use to describe that? It starts with an A. It's the aseity of God. A-S-C-E-I-T-Y. The aseity of God. God is, um, and you see, it, the reason I bring that up is because when you read, if you read a systematic theology, that's generally how it's listed, especially among the um, older theologians. But God is eternally self-existent. Apart from him, nothing exists, um, nothing that exists could exist. I've already said that tonight. So not only is God independent in and of himself, he has created all things in such a way that they're fully dependent upon him. So he's independent, and everything else is fully dependent. Really an interesting um, <coughs> difference there. Um, God wills everything to exist. He's constantly willing it all to exist. If he ceases for one second to no longer will things to exist, they will no longer exist. They'll just, however he determines, I assume just kind of fizzle off into nothing. So God alone is the fountain of all being, the only source in whom, again, we live and move and have our being. And that's... Um, the simple way the confession states it. Um, and then it goes on to say um, that of, through, and to God are all things. So I condense that. It says it a little bit differently, but that's the, that's the concept there. The Bible unmistakably presents God as the central purpose of all the universe. Um, in whom all glory and honor exists and by whom all things derive meaning and purpose, as we discussed earlier. So one of the defining features of, for instance, a regenerate man um, is his understanding that all authority belongs to God and not man. Um, I think all of us probably, especially those who've been saved as adults much later in life, recognize that one of the defining features of regeneration is this idea of recognizing um, authority. That once I was my own authority, or once the authority in my life was, uh, you know, you name it, whatever, my friends, my parents, my, you know, whatever. But when we become new creatures in Christ, we recognize that authority truly belongs to God and Him alone. And all authority that anyone else has is a derived authority. 
It's something that God has given, and it's simply a um, a power or an authority that um, uh, is still submitting to the greater authority of God, whether we like it or not. Um, and all authorities need to submit to that, um, and in the end will, willingly or unwillingly. Um, you think of the statement that, um, in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He could have very easily said at the end of that, willingly or unwillingly. Because he says on heaven and earth and what else? And under the earth, right? What does that imply? Yeah. That even those who are condemned to eternal judgment, even though they remain hateful of God, will say Jesus Christ is Lord. And they will submit to that reality. Um, so all of creation exists for the purpose of ascribing glory and majesty to God alone, who is the sole and primary authority, um, <coughs> all other authority. Um, and you think of, uh, think of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the greatest story to help us uh, kind of orient ourselves to this authority of God. What someone, so you can hear someone else talk for a minute, tell us uh, what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, what is the story there with relationship to authority? Mm-hmm. And what happened? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Nebuchadnezzar's pride and supposed ultimate authority, right? Look at all that I've done. What What was Nebuchadnezzar pointing to in the mind of someone who was living in his age. What did they assume about all the land that Nebuchadnezzar had authority over? That was existence. (laughs) They didn't have any concept of anything beyond their little world there. And Nebuchadnezzar's little fiefdom was the world. So he thought he had absolute authority over all the world. And as soon as he made that claim, God humbles him as a beast in the field. He made him to be something like a, a werewolf or whatever, <laughs> a yeti. <laughs> For how long? Seven years. And then at the end of his humbling, he proclaims that God is the God of the universe, and he is not. He's brought to a place of humility. Some would argue that Nebuchadnezzar was saved as a result of that. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. The Bible doesn't give us really clear evidence of either way. Tied to that is this idea of sovereign dominion. And we're almost, actually almost done, so um, I want to finish this up before we break. The writers of the confession give us one of, in this passage um, right here, one of the most challenging truths of Scripture um, to the mind of any man, uh, and especially those who hold to a man-centered theology, especially that of the modern evangelicalism. It's this, He hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. It's the words of the confession. In the most hotly rejected and most frequently misinterpreted and ignored chapter in all of the Bible, 
the Apostle Paul explains the sovereign dominion over God, over all creatures, to do for, by, and upon them whatsoever he pleases. Um, what chapter is that? Romans chapter 9. You got it. He begins with the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis 25. God showing mercy and favor to Jacob over his older brother Esau. Um, and he says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. So it takes all those arguments out of place. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Their mother was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. So there's no um, translation issues with the words there. Hated means hated in English, Greek, and Hebrew. And so <coughs> we have to understand that in relationship to um, all of the attributes of God we've already discussed. But as Paul writes this in Romans 9, he anticipates the response of those who are going to object. And so he raises rhetorical questions. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? That's Romans nine, nineteen. And the natural tendency of mankind is going to be to reject the authority of God. And instead, what, are, <clears throat> what is Paul saying? You're going to say to me, that's not fair. That is not fair that God loved one and hated the other, but they weren't even born yet and had not done anything. Um, it's just not fair. Um, so that's a faulty position of what fairness is, and it's a faulty assumption uh, with regards to self-autonomy. So Paul responds, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So, as the fountain of all being, of, through, and to whom all things owe their, cre owe their creation, their existence, <coughs> God reserves the right over all creatures to do by them, to them, and through them and upon them whatsoever he desires for his good, wise, and holy purposes. That's a very offensive statement in light of a culture that says, I'm my own boss. I do as I please, and no one can tell me what to do. Um, it's the height of foolishness and ignorant opposition for one to question the potter's right over his clay. Paul explains in verses 22 through 24, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Um, so God has determined that those whom he has not elected unto salvation should be eternally condemned so that his holy justice would be shown. That's a very offensive statement. 
especially to um, those who have a man-centered theology that says, well, God really wants everyone to be saved. The Bible says something quite different. God wants to show forth his holy justice in his condemning of sinners who are getting exactly what they want and exactly as they deserved. Likewise, God has chosen to lavish mercy on some among his creation to be eternal representatives of the riches of his glory. So what Paul does here is takes out of this whole equation us. It's all about God. It is about God's glory, about God's justice. And we are simply um, the clay that's being molded to be representatives of one or the other. That doesn't mean we don't matter. Again, we're created in God's image. It doesn't mean he doesn't care about us. He loves us um, and is merciful toward us. But all of that serves the greater purpose of his glory. And his sovereign dominion over all that he's created makes him alone the determiner of what's permissible and what is not. So all of this with regards to his sovereign dominion also speaks to his right and his authority to proclaim, thus saith the Lord, and for us to be called to submit to that. Um, Man has always sought to undermine the moral law of God. It's intrinsic to our nature to do so. And yet it's imprinted on the hearts of every man so clearly that it's enough to condemn us in our sin. That's what Paul argues in Romans chapter 2. <laughs> but it's God alone who has the right to command all men everywhere to submit to his law and to his ways while simultaneously creating a world in which man on his own is completely unable to do what God tells him to do. And it pleases God that this should be the case so that his work of regeneration would be, as Ephesians 1 says, to the praise of his glorious grace. So, again, I've just said something that I could answer again with Paul's words. To say, God commands something that he knows we cannot do. And I would say with Paul, and you will say, um, how can it be? That's not fair. And yet God does this for the greater purpose of showing forth his grace. Um, Paul makes the illusion in Romans 8 that the fall of mankind was by God for the purpose of him showing forth his glory. That in love he would do all of this work to bring himself glory. So he says that um, that God subjected the world to futility. Um, so we recognize in all of this that we're going to raise all of these philosophical questions in opposition to it. And our natural tendency is to push against that, to grind against this sovereign dominion of God. Um, but the Bible speaks very clearly. And as we think of it from God's perspective, we recognize um, that this is good and right and something that we should delight in and not fight against. Um, an affirmation of the sovereign dominion of God is a denial of any position that assumes God has unfulfilled desires or that he attempts to bring about ends that result in failure. And this is what I mentioned earlier and where we'll, we'll end. Most Christians would not say that they believe God has failed or can fail, but they say certain things that taken to their conclusion can only be an affirmation of that position. 
So let me give you an example. A very common statement you'll hear among evangelicals is that God wants to save as many people as he can. Probably heard that before or some form of that from someone. So the very clear implication of that is that God wants something that he can't have. And that's the salvation of all men. So God's work of regeneration will be considered in later chapters of the confession, but there's a surface assumption here that we can look at. It's not simply a disagreement with regard to the work of God in predestining and electing. It's more deeply an undermining not only of his ability, but also his action in doing what pleases him. In other words, to say that God wants to save as many people as he can implies that creation in some way acts independently of God and that his decree is merely a desire or a, um, the open theist would say, a hopeful outcome or um, those who are synergists who believe God and man are working together in all of this would say um, that he is decreeing something simply because he foresaw the outcome of how man would respond. So all of this reasoning really flies in the face of God's sovereign dominion and the biblical affirmation from Psalm 115.3 that our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. God has no unfulfilled desires. He has no unmet wants. And so to claim that God wants something that he can't bring about in the end, is a complete denial of sovereignty. I recognize that people who say those things wouldn't deny that God is sovereign. But the logical conclusion of such statements leads to that. And so we, are, we do right by them to help them see that, um, that they would have a right view of God. So any, uh, any thoughts um, on that or questions? How many of you can say that one of the defining elements of your salvation was a recognition of the authority of God over your own. I'd say that with me, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and it's, you know, if we think about um, a couple of weeks ago when we thought of the woman who was healed by touching the cloak of Jesus, that she was very much self-serving in that. Um, she had a faith that was, um, it was there, it was very small, but at the heart of it was to serve herself. And essentially, when we all come to Christ, it's self-serving initially um, until we really start to recognize God's authority and God's dominion and God's sovereignty. As we begin to walk in those things, we recognize this thing's not about me at all. I certainly derive um, great gifts from this and God has been very gracious to me and all of my joy and hope is wrapped up in him uh, but ultimately this is about him and so authority really plays a huge role in that that's right <laughs> that's exactly right any other thoughts All right, someone want to pray for us to close for the evening?